0: I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever, but don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And friend, I'm excited that you are listening in for season four, where each month I'm sharing this podcast with a different co-host and her story, which gets shared at the beginning of the month. And her story curates the content we discuss for the rest of the month. So we've been inviting special guests on to address some of my co-host's honest questions. And since February, we've been really loving that format. Um, I'm so enjoying the people that I'm getting to know as a result of these journeys that we're sharing together. So I wanted to give a quick shout out to the Patreon supporters who keep this show on the air. Your monthly contributions are so appreciated. And if you want to help out, we have a bunch of perks for those who support this ministry. And there's special content that you get when you sign up, including a bonus episode each month. So if you want to find out more how you can help us with Patreon, please go to my website at findingsomethingreal.com. Today, we're back with this month's special co-host, Bernice Craig. Bernice, welcome back.
1: Thank you. It's such a privilege to be able to be here with you, Janelle.
0: Uh, Well, I'm excited that you're here. And I know that you just recently moved to the Oregon coast. How are you adjusting to your new community? Have you found a church yet? We
1: have not found a church. We are still connected to the church, um, which we left in Ohio. So we do still keep in touch and worship online with our community in Ohio. uh, But we haven't found a local church in our Oregon community yet.
0: Yeah. How's it going, though? Are you enjoying the coast?
1: Oh, how could you not enjoy the coast?
0: (laughs) i I mean the oregon coast is one of my favorite places in the world the um cannon beach christian conference center is one of our favorite places to go ever um and um yeah it's it's a very special place for us so have you gotten to cannon beach yet not yet but soon hopefully that's someplace yeah it's someplace worth going so um if you haven't friend already listened to bernice share about her personal story of coming to faith Or heard her talk about the church um, hurt that she's experienced and the questions she has about Christianity, specifically the future of the church. um, I just encourage you to please go back and take a listen to last week's episode. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. But, Bernice, in last week's episode, I think you brought up some questions that are hard sometimes to ask, um, especially for a Christian. I've been thinking about this. Um, I think. Because if you don't believe in God or if you don't feel like you're necessarily wanting Jesus, it's easier to point out the flaws you see with Christianity. But if you have decided to follow Him and then you want to address some things um, inside of the church, um, I think sometimes those questions, at least from my perspective, sometimes get ignored because of the feeling that it's going to cause division or cause problems or different things. And I just appreciate these honest conversations where we can talk about things that are real, that are happening, because I think there's a lot of people who've experienced similar things that you have. Um, So yeah, thank you for being real and honest and allowing other people to learn through your story. I appreciate that. So I am looking forward to diving into some of those tough questions you brought up. And one question, Bernice, that you shared was, can the church do good or even survive in the modern world? And I'm excited because today's guest is someone who probably can share some thoughts about that. Uh, Before we get into that, though, I wanted to introduce him. Caleb Kaltenbach is the executive director of the Messy Grace Group. He's a research pastor at Shepherd Church in Los Angeles, the author of Messy Truth, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction, which incidentally just came out yesterday, August 10th. Uh, He's also written God of Tomorrow and Messy Grace, which shares his story of being raised by three activist LGBTQ parents accepting Jesus and seeing his parents trust Jesus. He speaks widely on issues of faith, reconciliation, and sexual diversity. He's a graduate of Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He received his doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's been interviewed in dozens of media outlets, including the New York Times, Fox News, Christianity Today, Focus on the Family, Family Life Today, um, and the Think Biblically podcast with Sean McDowell. He and his wife Amy have two children and reside in Southern California. Caleb, wow, thank you for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with both of you.
0: Um, I'm thrilled and I've started reading your new book Messy Truth and it's been endorsed by some people whose ministries I really admire including Preston Sprinkle and Sean McDowell Um, it's a page-turner I love the stories that you have in there Uh, it's hard to read but really really rich Um, I want you to share a little bit more about that but first um, you have an incredible story so I was wondering if you would share briefly about your story of growing up with three gay parents
2: yeah, uh, my parents were both uh, professors in Columbia, Missouri, teaching at places like Stevens College and the University of Missouri, Columbia. They got a divorce when I was two. Uh, they both went into same sex relationships. My dad was in several different relationships, but my mom went into a 22 year monogamous relationship with a psychologist named Vera. They moved to Kansas City. And um, that was the environment I was raised in uh, growing up, preschool age, elementary age. Uh, going with them to uh, bars and clubs and house parties, campouts, activist events, pride parades. And I saw the ugliness of a lot of Christians in some of those settings where Christians would be on the street corners holding up signs saying, God hates you. They would throw urine on people. I remember asking my kid, my mom as a young kid, why are they acting like that? And, and my mom said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians mm-hmm. hate gay people. If you're not like them, they won't like you. And I, I saw young young men who were dying of AIDS in the 1980s being ignored by their Christian families. And I just thought, man, I never want to be a Christian because if they're this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus must be. And then when I was in high school, I learned uh, about this Bible study, got invited to this Bible study that was led by a friend of mine who was a Christian and it was four high schoolers. And I thought I'm going to go and be a pretend Christian, <laughs> dismantle their faith. And obviously that turned out real well. It's a great plan. And, um, I ended up learning that Jesus was not like a lot of the people on the street corners. And, um, then I changed my, my view of uh, sexuality, uh, to what I hold today, that God designed sexual intimacy and affection to be expressed in a marriage between a man and a woman, but also equally that, uh, biblical beliefs should never be the basis to devalue other people. Hmm. That a theological conviction is never a catalyst to malign or sideline someone else. Um, my beliefs about relationship and intimacy have never ever interfered in my relationships with my friends who are in same-sex relationships or uh, heterosexual friends who are living together but not yet married um, because those are my beliefs. Those, those do not in any way, um, uh, in, my, in my mind, discredit the equal intrinsic value that all of us were assigned by God because we're made in his image and Everybody is somebody that Jesus died for. So then I had to come out as a Christian to my three gay parents, and they ended up kicking me out of their house for a while. Oh, and man. I had to live with uh, several different friends. And a lot of people, you know, when I share that part of the story, they'll say, man, that, that's, that, that's weird. I thought that only happened to uh, LGBTQ students and teenagers. And I'm like, well, it, it's not a conservative Christian thing. Fear is a human thing. It's a mm. homo sapien thing right it's something that all humans struggle with we naturally fear whatever we don't understand or what makes us feel out of control and so uh, what we do is we go into fight or flight mode we become indifferent when the answer is, is to trust god who has all powers unconditional loving knows everything and to lean into whatever makes us afraid whether it's a people group an idea um, whatever that is and eventually i became a, a pastor And eventually I lived in Dallas, Texas for three and a half years, because we've all got to live in purgatory at some point. It was just (laughs) horrible. Anyway, horrific humidity and Dallas Cowboys and so on. And while I was there, um, my mother's partner had died from cancer, but my mom and dad moved separately down to uh, be closer to our family. And then they both started attending my church, even though they knew what I believed. And at the ages of 69, 70, they gave their lives to Jesus. And so what I do right now, um, you know, through the Messy Grace Group, and uh, I help churches, uh, definitely schools and ministries, but especially churches develop processes and systems that will um, not only honor what they believe and honor their values, but also mainly um, create room and margin, more than margin for LGBTQ people to attend because people find and follow Jesus better in community, not in isolation. So that's a little bit of uh, my story and what I do.
0: Wow. That's an incredible story, and it it boggles the mind. And as you touched on, I mean, you associated hate with Christianity. Um, What did you find instead when you went to that, you know, that Bible study, planning on just pretending that you were there (laughs) as a Christian? What did you encounter?
2: I encountered a bunch of people who loved me for who I was. Um, they weren't trying to convert me into another version of themselves. Mm. They loved me for who I was, and they accepted me for who I was. They didn't agree, which is one of the things I try to help people understand. There's a big difference between acceptance and agreement. Acceptance is about you know, what Brene Brown calls empathy, feeling with another person or what Reggie Joyner says, empathy is putting your own thoughts and feelings on pause long enough to think and feel with another person. Um, Acceptance is something we are commanded to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's love, Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everybody's opinion, everybody's relationship decision, everybody's view on life. Um, We don't have to agree, we're not commanded, but we are commanded to love, we are commanded to accept. And so there are a bunch of people who are willing to accept me for me. and not, and they weren't trying to make me into a clone. They just really wanted me to uh, see Jesus for who Jesus was, or who He is. And I think that made the biggest difference. It was community, which is really what I write a lot about in Messy Truth, because it's within community that we truly um, grow closer to Jesus, that we start understanding truth, that we are able to develop our own authenticity, and you know, a good community can really, really strengthen. Uh, your identity, uh, no matter what your identity is placed in, a good community uh, strengthens that.
0: What do you say to people who say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate his followers and I don't love the church?
2: Um, I would say I would be very, very careful with that. Um, Number one, I've got church hurt too. Uh, But I can tell you this, um, when we say that we hate the church, we're telling Jesus that we hate his bride. I'm married. um, And I, I wouldn't like it if somebody said, I like you, Caleb, but I hate your wife. Yeah. You're like, wow. Okay, great. Well, thank you. And hopefully we'll see you never again. But anyway, no. Um, and, and, and I, and I try to help people understand, cause I do understand church hurt. I know that there are some people that have worse church hurt than I do, but I do have church hurt. And so I do get some of that. And I try to help people understand there's a difference between the church and Christians. Like, we've got to kind of draw, differentiate between the universal church, you know, the the gathering of all God's people, the kingdom of God, but also the church that is alive today. Um, There's a difference between the church as a whole and Christians, because the church as a whole does not just, is not just made up of the Western church is also made up of the church in the Middle East and the near East and the East and uh, Northern Russia, and even Australia, and whoever lives in Antarctica. I mean, the church is made up of everybody. So I do think that we have to delineate between the broader church and Christians. Um, And that's not to talk down to anybody. I'm just trying to say that the church as a whole, as God views it, um, I think is different than uh, Christians in specific segments of the church. I don't know if that makes sense at all or not, but that's the way I try to think of it.
0: Yeah, it does. Bernice, did you have some thoughts about that? Looks like maybe you do. (laughs) I usually do have some thoughts
1: about things. (laughs) I think, um, yeah, it's especially, I mean, Caleb, especially after living in the Bible Belt, it's very important for us to remember that not everyone that goes to church has like an intimacy with Christ. Um, And you can say you're a Christian and not be at all transformed by the Holy Spirit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people who attend church. That doesn't mean that they're transformed. That doesn't mean that they're growing. There are even people that um, attend church, but they're stagnated. They're plateaued because they're giving into this gravitational pull inside of all of us towards self, you know? And, and so, yeah, I, I definitely think that just because somebody goes to church doesn't make them, you know, a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have every weekend or during church services, wherever you have a pretty big mix more so than what we realize of unbelievers and believers and unbelievers who think they're believers. Um, So, yeah, but again, all the more reason why I think we have to really differentiate between um, the global church, the the church as a whole and Christians in specific segments, or uh, dare I say people that uh, assume themselves to be Christians.
0: Mm. You share a story, I think it's early on in your book, um, where I think you were a new Christian. You were invited to a church camp, I think by, I can't remember the name of the girl who invited you, but you go and uh, you experienced um, some (laughs) people treating you really poorly. Um, And dare I say, in the name of Jesus, right? We're concerned about things. What made you keep on... Staying in the church when so easily you could have been like, yep, I'm out the door.
2: I stayed in the church because I had had enough experience with other Christians to know that these individuals did not represent the totality of Christendom. They did not represent um, people who are truly saved. You know, if you're saved, I think all three of us are going to agree. Hopefully we will. Um, Maybe not. Let's find out. (laughs) If if you're saved, if a person is saved, that doesn't mean that they're not going to mess up. It doesn't mean that they're not going to go wayward. That doesn't mean that they're not going to have their moments of doubt. As a matter of fact, doubt still implies belief. You know, I mean, I've never doubted unicorns exist except for the big chubby ones called rhinoceroses. (laughs) Like I've never doubted that a unicorn existed uh, because I've never doubted that a werewolf exists because I don't believe in werewolves. You can't doubt what you don't believe in. Mm Um, so there's always going to be doubt and there's always going to be fear. Um, but people who are really in tune, uh, to the spirit are not content with staying in doubt or staying in a place of legalistic thinking or staying in a place, um, of self gratification. They are going to keep pursuing God. And sometimes it takes God smacking us in the back of the head with a two by four. We've all been there, you know, but still um, people who are really rooted in Christ will realize their mistakes, you know, like, like David in Psalm 51, one through four and and verse 10, creating me a clean heart. Oh God. Um, you know, search me. It's like, you read that Psalm. It's like David is begging God to pull him back to the place he was before, because he realizes his utter dependence on God in that moment. And so I think that's what really separates, um, uh, spiritually mature Christians from nominal Christians or even legalistic Christians that think that their their maturity, their, to use a big theological word, their sanctification, being made more like Christ, is based on their knowledge. But God doesn't care how much you know if you don't have any compassion to show.
1: Well, and I think, Caleb, it's interesting, too, that you touch on the importance of doubt, because I think especially like if we're looking at like the progression from, you know, having a set of beliefs, we believe that in Christ we mature and there is, you know, in scripture, there's the imagery of we begin Um, as babies drinking milk, and we mature to eating full meals and real meat and more substantial food. And so we have that same progression in our faith. You know, we start with a certain set of beliefs, but there has to be doubt in order to be growth. You have to doubt the beliefs that you have in order to be pressed into the growth and to spiritual maturity. Like you have, there has to be that the presence of doubt is an important part of faith or else we do not grow.
2: No, I, I would agree with that. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is actually John the Baptist. Mm. You know, he's in story. prison, you know, and, you know, Jesus. he's Jesus's cousin. I'm sure John the Baptist probably thought, you know what, Jesus, he's going to do something about this. You know, he's going to break me out, And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, where is he? Day's coming. And then he sends his followers to ask, hey, are you really the son of God or should we expect another? Um you know, even even he got pushed to that. And, and Jesus uh, reassures John the Baptist through the messengers they sent. I'm sure they brought word back to John the Baptist. But I always wonder if if Jesus had not said that uh, about John and ultimately to John, where he would get that message, would he have had the bravery, the courage, the faith to go through um, his ultimate ending, you know, which, you know, was, was horrific. Um, but I think that Um, God leveraged that doubt, not only strengthened John the Baptist, but strengthened other people around Jesus that heard him say what he said about Jesus. So I think doubt can be toxic when we remain there and we don't care enough to um, search. Um, But I I think God does invite us to ask questions. And I think there's a difference between um, questions and um, trying to put God in his place and trying to be condescending towards him. Um, that, that's the way I look at it. Yeah.
0: Man, I've used that story of John the Baptist a lot. <laughs> and I think too, like, it doesn't make sense if you can't see an eternal perspective. You know, what happened to John, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with the story of John the Baptist, he gets behead- beheaded. And um, it's just, it's horrific. Like you said, Caleb, but there was more to come. You know, that's not the end of the story. What we can see isn't always all that there is. In fact, it's just not. Um, but you talk in your book about um, truth being messy, right? And you even mentioned, too, like um, you try to educate people. Get, tell me if I'm um, misquoting you here, <laughs> but you want to educate Christians. Like you can disagree with somebody and still love them. But I feel like that's the message of our culture that. You cannot disagree with somebody um, and love them at the same time. That our world says constantly, if you love me, you'll agree with me. Um, How do you fight that narrative that's not just maybe in the church, but is in the cultural realm?
2: Well, I think think there are two things at play that drive that narrative, or three things. First of all, I think there are a bunch of false dichotomies that are ruling our society today uh either or us versus them uh, false dichotomies where people don't think that they have a voice unless they're an extremist on one side or the other when I think e- even the polls that we see, political polls and uh, opinions on uh, societal issues, you look at the questions they're even worded in such a way to where you really have no other chance you know whether or not to answer yes or no to that specific question if you don't want it to be seen as a Uh, Nazi Nazi toothless hillbilly living in the Appalachian Mountains. I mean, you don't want to be seen that way. So um, we we have the us versus them mentality uh, big time. The other, the second aspect I think is really driving what you're talking about in our society is the fact that um, in our society right now, um, emotions and reactions are overemphasized while logic and truth are underemphasized. Um, Emotions trump logic. Um, you know, when it was uh, one of the uh, early church leaders, Augustine, who said that the mind and the will must move together. Um, Dr. John Townsend, who wrote the boundaries books with cloud and so on, he has a tremendous book called leading with your gut. And he talks about the importance of leading, not only whether you know, but just sometimes you get that gut feeling, and you really got to pay attention to it. My wife has it. And she's almost always right when we meet somebody new and she'll be like, I don't know, there's something about that. And I'm like, look, you need, you need to calm down, Caiaphas. <laughs> quit being all judgy, judgy, you know? And when it comes down to it, she was right. She's got that gut feeling and that's based off experience. And so, Like discernment. Um, they need to um, work together. And and feelings, some of the times you do have to make decisions based on feelings. But there's a difference between making Um, a decision based on your emotions and your feelings versus making an impulsive reactive emotional decision. I can't remember the last time I made an impulsive reactive emotional decision and yet social media leads us to do that all the time. We see something we don't like it's like oh, I'm going to just type a response right there forgetting that we're talking to a human being on the other side. Um, And then I think the third thing that really kind of speaks to why disagreement is frowned upon is that um, the reason why a lot of people don't like disagreement and why it's not allowed is because the things that we would disagree upon, people base their identity in. Mm. And when somebody bases their identity in something and you start uh, disagreeing with whatever they base their identity in, they take it personally as if you are um, devaluing them as a human being. Right. And that's the reason why, that speaks to one of the many reasons why I think that, you know, Our identity, our primary identity, there are so many other identities that we can have. You know, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a Star Wars fan, I'm this, I'm that, whatever you want to call it. My primary identity is based in Jesus Christ and him alone, because when my identity is in him, he protects it. Um, You know, I don't have to try to defend it. When my identity is in him, um, that allows me to be an ordinary person through whom which God does extraordinary things. I don't have to try to be someone great. I just get to be a servant who loves people and and tries to as much as I can. And I think that anytime somebody places their identity, whether it's in their sexuality, whether it's in their occupation, whether it's in their sports team, or I know a lot of people, their identity is in their family and their Mm -hmm. kids. And they have built their kids up to be to expectations that their kids can't ever live up to and they don't understand how in the future their relationship with their kids is going to be wrecked in one way or another. And anytime we place our identity in something other than Christ, our main identity, it's going to eventually fail us uh, one way or another.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Bernice, do you have any follow-up questions for Caleb here? Yeah, so I'm thinking kind of
1: just about what you're saying, Caleb, and I'm thinking particularly about from So from my own perspective, I am planning on enrolling in seminary and pursuing pastoral ministry in the next couple of years. And so I'm thinking about this in terms of uh, the congregational setting and where we're seeing uh, so many of the members of our congregations are also falling into this trap of our uh, misplaced identities. And we see it with politics. We see it with um, with gun reform, we see it all over the place. It's everywhere that we have become aligned with a certain set of beliefs, and then that beliefs can become more important than our creedal belief even. And I I think it's interesting the way that we have drawn the lines in very specific places, Uh, that some things are easier to disagree about than others. Like we, I mean, generally, uh, you won't break fellowship with someone over if they believe in infant baptism versus like adult submersion baptism. Like that's something that we're pretty okay with disagreeing on, but like 500 years ago, that wasn't true. That was like huge. Um, and now it's like the, the issue of how we relate to and how we love LGBT, um, the members of the LGBT plus community and how this, that, and the other thing be- have become lines in the sand. Uh, for, well, if you believe this way, then your identity is in this camp. And if you believe this way, your identity is in another camp. And so how do we minister to our congregations, to our friends, to our families, who have, you know, this misplaced sense of identity, but also this, this set of like Beliefs about belief that if you believe this, then you're one way. I you re, you referenced Brené Brown, and, and she talks a lot about like the big sort, um that you know we have liberal communities in these places in the country and, um more conservative communities in other places, and these groups are no longer mixing. But uh, Christians, I mean you you your books are called Messy Grace and Messy Truth. And I believe that Christians are called to the messy middle place. Like the very, we're not called to black and white. We're very much called to that messy gray space in the middle. How do you counsel, um, you know, through your organization, Christians to walk this middle way?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, First and foremost, I think it starts with Making sure that Jesus is the main emphasis of your church of your congregation. Um, I have friends. I'm sure you guys have friends where um, maybe they attend a church that is very known for being an affirming congregation, and they have the flag flying outside. You know, one of the uh, many um, sexual minority flags, or maybe they just have the rainbow colored LGBTQ flag. Um, maybe this. Con- maybe a congregation is known. Or their stance on immigration. Maybe this congregation is known for their just stance in defense of the Bible over and over and over again, you know, on the conservative side. And i found that many well-intentioned people, um, when they end up, um, being known so much for one thing, whether it's a defense of the Bible, whether it's sexual minorities, whether it's immigration, whether it's, um, uh, political reform, this is, um, many churches I know like that, um, Jesus gets shoved out of the limelight. He gets shoved out of the spotlight. And it, it's really hard to serve as a good witness and really direct people to identifying mainly with Jesus Christ over and above everything else if your church is all about something. Else, other than Jesus, in their primary focus. So I, I would say, and I know that should be a given, but more and more, it's not a given, that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone should be our main focus. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, is that um, there are a lot of people that try to draw the, draw the lines in the sand, like you know what you said, Bernice, And I totally agree with you. And that is that is so annoying, and to me, that is just a huge sign of not only immaturity but insecurity. Um and, and I've seen it on both sides of, of the aisle, uh politically. And I've seen it on both liberal theological camps and conservative theological camps. Um, but it, it, it's the same thing, it's just different flavors. It, but it's the same thing. It, it's it's you trying to establish who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. And it's not up to me to establish who's in or who's out. Now I have my biblical beliefs. My biblical beliefs should never obstruct my view of another person whatsoever. I think also, I agree with you, there are some, there are some things that I in theologically that I see as black and white. And I'm sure you do too, or else you wouldn't be considering pastoral ministry. Like there's one God, Trinity, Bibles inspired, you know, that word has come to mean so many different things to people. You know, there, there are different things like that that I believe, but more and more I do, I do believe in this, in this messy middle. Um, And and I believe that we are called to that. And I believe that when we live to, as I talk about in my first book, Messy Grace, uh, live in the tension of grace and truth, there's a name for that tension and it's love. That love is the tension that we feel between grace and truth. And the most unloving thing that we could do is to exit that messy middle. Because we are either naturally all about the grace or all about the truth, all about the rules or all about the mercy. Um, but it takes all the dependence in the world if we're on the true side to stretch to the grace side and vice versa. Um, And it takes no effort whatsoever to just be all about the rules if that's what we naturally are, be all about the grace. And so I really do think that there's a sense in which we have to learn how to stretch over to the other side. I think that a majority of people, and I could be wrong, Bernice, I'd love to see uh, what either of you think on this, but I really believe that there are less people who are either or us versus them extremists than what is represented in the news, on social media, wherever. Um, I have found more and more that people will have two different views on the same issue, um, where people will have a theological view and a civil view. I've found this especially with gay marriage, for instance, where there are individuals who will say, well, theologically, I believe that marriage was created by God to be between a man and woman. However, um, same-sex marriage is legal in the United States and people should have the opportunity uh, to get married if they want and have protections afforded to them by that. So I have found more and more that people have differing theological and civil views on the same issue. And yet that's that's never gonna be reflected in a poll. That's never gonna be reflected in a survey.
1: And that civil view can be a theological view. Like it can be the outflow of the theological view that all people are made in the image of God and deserve to be safe and protected. Right. And
2: and we have free will.
1: Yes. And like, so even if that civil view is theoretically um, opposed, some, some, a lot of people would say opposed to what scripture teaches about sexuality, it is still the outflowing of the love of God that leads to that civil view.
2: Absolutely. I agree with you. I agree with you. It is, it is based in theology. I totally agree. Um, I guess I was trying to make a binary to try to explain the, the messiness that some people feel and that I've sensed out there, but I totally agree with you. It, there, it is based in, in uh, the dignity of humanity and in the fact that God has given us free will and does hold us responsible for our decisions. And I think also, um, and I want to be very, very careful what I say here, Okay. So be careful. Um, I 100% believe in religious freedom. I think that it makes society better. And when I say religious freedom, I mean freedom for all religions. Okay. I I think that it makes society better. Um, And that's why I'm a supporter of religious freedom. Uh, No matter if we're talking about the religions of indigenous peoples, um, Christian colleges, Jewish synagogues, or uh, mosque or uh, Islam academies. I am a supporter of religious freedom. However, I do think that religious freedom has also created a lot of uh, nominal, lightweight Christians where you have uh, people who it's going to church is an option, believing in Jesus, that's just an option. You go to a place like North Korea, in many uh, Uh, districts in India right now, in the Middle East, even China, you want to believe in biblical Christianity, you are taking your life in your hands. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a depth to that kind of a faith that we have not experienced here in America. Now, on the other hand, I do, again, believe in religious freedom, and I think it's important. I think that it's a great avenue to tell people about Jesus, but I do believe that it has made Uh, Western Christianity very, very nominal, and it has allowed us to over-associate our faith with politics. Um, And it used to be where I would say that's mainly on the conservative side, uh, but in today's world, and I'm not even talking about uh, Christians who are politically liberal. I found that Christians who are politically progressive beyond liberalism um, are starting to act more and more like the Christian coalition and the moral majority of the 1980s and 90s where they're putting too much their faith in politics and we saw how that turned out for conservative christians and i think this history will be repeating itself soon and so i totally agree with you
1: christianity many christians have come to expect that christianity should be the dominant religious culture and so persecution has has come to mean in many circles being not the dominant culture. Instead of, you know, what we know to be real persecution is like, we, we know the stories of the martyrs. We know the stories of the persecuted in our faith. But now in America, we have a, a religious society where Christians are so accustomed to being the dominant culture that they can buy Christian products at Walmart. And they think if they can't do that, then they're persecuted.
2: Yeah, there's a big difference between inconvenience and persecution. There's a really big difference between the two, um, and I've, I've seen that over and over again, and you look at you look at what Paul writes to churches, and you see a lot of people misapplying scripture, and they try to apply what Paul wrote to churches and apply it to greater society, and it's like, don't do that. Even Paul said that in First Corinthians 5 when he's like, you know, we don't judge the world by the world's standards. We don't do that. You know, we, we deal with our own. And um, I think that there's a real misunderstanding of not only persecution, but the application of uh, what the kingdom of God is.
0: Mm. Yeah, I know I, I get caught up in it, too. You know, it's really easy to just, um, you know, <laughs> be concerned with your own culture, the, your own way of doing things, your own way of seeing the world um, you know, I grew up in the 90s and, uh, you know, purity culture and all those different things uh, had an impact on my life. And I'm not saying that they were necessarily horrible. I had a really great youth group experience and um, th- that was great for me. But I, I think for me, when my faith really like was like, whoa, I remember going to the Philippines when I was 15 years old and seeing people worship with, when they had nothing. They had nothing to worship God with, you know? And they were giving, they were generous. And they were like, we're all in for Christ, you know? And I was humbled. I came back to the US and I felt like, how have I been living? How have I been living like this? Like just taking for granted the fact that I can go to church on Sunday or youth group or whatever, and taking my my faith, my, my relationship with Jesus, like it didn't really matter. It was just a flippant thing. And then that leads to hypocrisy, right? It leads to people going, oh, that girl says she's a Christian, but she doesn't act like a Christian. She doesn't treat people like that or whatever, you know? And it's so easy. I've, I've fallen into that, you know? And I, I think it's, um, it's interesting. I, I wanted to share a little story and I, I don't know where this is gonna go, <laughs> but I, when I was reading your book, Caleb, it reminded me of something that happened years ago. Uh, someone really close to me, um, had just been severely wounded by his wife. Um, she had left him for a same-sex relationship, and uh, he he was spending time with me. And I said, "Let's go to church. Let's go to church. I, I just want to take you to this church. That's it's been a place of healing for me, um, and I I love that they're so accepting and loving. And you're going to be welcome there. It's going to be great. And it took a lot of coaxing to get him to come to church. Um, and we go to church. And we sit down, and he started to have almost a panic attack. Um, he said, I got to get out of here. There were there was a couple, a lesbian couple, like three rows ahead of us, and they were like cuddling, you know. And I'm just wondering, like, looking back on that situation, he was freaking out. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know, like, how do you even respond to this situation? Uh, as far as I know, he never went back to church after that, except for uh, for like holidays and to appease certain people, you know, um, how do we deal with the messiness? I, I've i had a, a young, I shouldn't say a young man, a guy, uh, Drew Berryessa on here twice. He has a very similar ministry to yours. And he says something that I love that you've touched on here, which is um, grace and truth. These are really hard concepts and there's a tension in the middle and Christians should feel a lot more tense all the time. It's that messiness. Like we should be like comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, but how do you deal with the day-to-day stuff like that? Because it's like, oh my gosh, like how do you even deal? I don't know. Well, I, first of all, I,
2: um, I'm i glad that you invited your friend to church. Second of all, it, it sounds like he would have, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it sounds like seeing... The couple together was a bit of ptsd Mm -hmm. and he probably would have had that reaction if he was in a movie theater if he was in a uh, restaurant now i understand you don't associate maybe a movie theater with that um you know in the same way even though i I guess we can associate songs and movies with different times in our lives you know that we don't want to see or whatever but um but yeah, that, I'm sorry that he had that experience at church, you know, I, I, hopefully he doesn't think of church as, associate church with that experience, um, I, I do believe that that can change, but that is, just sounds like, and and I'm not trying to belittle it, but it just sounds like really, really unfortunate timing, um, you know,
1: um, I think, in response to that story to Janelle, like it is really sad that that happened to him. And it's it's not a good thing that it's something that he had to experience. Um, but it also brings up the larger question that there are many, many people who have been hurt in church and have anxiety reactions or post-traumatic stress reactions or trauma responses in church settings. And then how do we minister to those people?
2: Yeah, one of the things that, that I talk about in the church, and it has really helped me with with my church hurt, and especially um, my church hurt after I was a Christian and after I was a pastor, but also my church hurt after I became a Christian, um, was I had had so many bad experiences or bad views of Christians that when I started having good experiences with Christians, that started balancing it out. And so in the book, I talk about if people have had bad experiences with Christians and that's really pushed them away from the church, um, then how much more can good experiences, um, you know, kind of heal us and, and really help us to see that not everybody is like that. Um, Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Gay Girl, Good God, she talked about, she, she in this one section, I might be misquoting her, but she does say, um, she asked the question, do you know who hurt, who healed me, who God used to heal me from my church hurt? Then she put the church. Hmm. And obviously when she says the church, she's referring to, um, Christians within the church in a specific place within the church. Um, but yeah, uh, there, there's been more than once when I've gone to church and I've associated it with some of the hurt that I've experienced in church. Um, but I have to go, but but it's also during those times when I have to focus more on what I know to be true than what I feel to be true. There are some times when I need to follow what I feel to be true, but in those times I've had to focus on what I know to be true, that the people that hurt me are not representative of everybody in the church. Uh, that the people who hurt me did so because they are hurting themselves. It doesn't justify it but at least it's not some ambiguous uh, s- systematic abuse that they're trying to do. It's, it's because they are hurting in, in and of themselves. And that doesn't mean that those same people are here. You know, there are many times when I've had to focus on what I know to be true over what I feel to be true. That's one of the reasons why I love how the new century version translates Proverbs four twenty three: 23, be careful what you think for your thoughts run your life. And I think to myself, man, that, is so true because a great deal of my life takes place not only in my relationships, but also within the context of my thoughts yeah. within my mind. So, yeah, that, that's some of what goes through my head uh, when I've had those uh, experiences. And I'm not saying that I've had as deep, you know, a wound as many other people. I know plenty of people have had deeper wounds, but still, I do think that God can use Christians to heal. The harm that other Christians or so-called Christians have done.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's part of being human that we hurt each other. You know, I feel like (laughs) it's like inevitable that I'm going to hurt somebody inevitably. (laughs) Um, But what do you say to somebody who has been wounded, who's maybe feeling like they're on the outside, like, I'm afraid to go back to church, or I'm afraid to engage in a Christian community because um, I've been severely wounded, and I don't know if I can go back what kind of encouragement would you give th- them, Caleb?
2: I would say number one, I don't blame you. Number two, I'm really, really sorry that happened to you. Um, I don't know all the details, but it was enough to give you this pause and this apprehension of going to church. And for that, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what you have gone through. Um, and I would also tell them, I want you to feel free to go when you're ready and know that I will go with you if you'd like. Or if there's somebody else, I can help you find somebody else to go with you where you might be more comfortable with. But I would say, I would try to encourage them to pray about, you know, God giving you the wherewithal to eventually make that step. Um Because God did not save us into the body of Christ to be separate from the body of Christ. Um, Even if there are really, really annoying people and awful people that have tried to push us away. um, I I would say go when you're ready, but, but until you're ready, be praying to God and asking him to give you the courage and the heart and the love and to already begin mending uh, your heart. You know, I would also recommend counseling um, if they're that apprehensive. My wife is a counselor. She's a marriage family therapist, a Christian therapist, and she has about 25 weekly clients. A lot of them are Christians. A lot of them have been hurt uh, by other Christians. And so I, I do think that um, there is supreme importance in consistent Counseling. I usually go see a counselor about every other week. Um, just as a pastor, sometimes you have to unload um, things to a third party that really doesn't know anybody that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those are some of the things that I that I would encourage.
0: So, what's a good way for someone to find a Christian counselor these days?
2: Uh, it would be to call a church. I think that. Um, Yeah, well, you can go to psychology today. And sometimes they will say, um, you know, like my wife is on there. And sometimes they'll say, um, you know, uh, they'll offer spiritual counseling or something like that. Or when you read the bios, like my wife will say, you know, I offer faith based counseling for clients who seek it. Um, You know, she doesn't force that. It's something that the client brings up that they want. So I would say, you know, you can go to a place like psychology today. Um, you can also go to uh, churches. And I, uh, you know, I work in a mega church. I know some people may or may not be apprehensive about mega churches who are listening. Some people may love them. I, I love churches of all sizes. I really do. I celebrate churches of all sizes, not just, I think there are great churches. There are 30 members. And I think there are really rotten churches. There are 30 members. Mm-hmm. And so to me, um, the attendant size of a church is not uh, make a church bad or good. But um, I've found that usually when it comes to resources, a lot of mega churches in the area, larger churches, will tend to have more of a compiled list of maybe Christian counselors uh, that you could go to. So if you call uh, some different churches, they usually keep a list of those counselors. I know at our church we have a list, and um, we provide that for people who call in whether they're a member or attendee or not. They may they might not even be a Christian, and we'll give it to them. It doesn't matter.
1: Well, and Janelle, I do really quickly want to come back to what you had asked Caleb a moment ago. You had asked him, um, you know, when you're considering inviting someone to the church, what's the best way to do that? Or how do you encourage someone to come to church with you? And I think that we've made church a system that you come to and then you get community. Like you come to church and we'll set you up with a community. Um, which is wonderful. It's wonderful that we're using, that we really do believe that the church is an important place and a great catalyst for for communities and community groups and small groups and discipleship. That's awesome. But I think there are so many people who will not come to church first. And that for those people, it can be the best choice to say, I'm in a small group. Why don't you come over for dinner and have dinner with my small group sometime? and then using the community to say this is what Christians are like to create that you know to to help ease someone into a church especially after church hurt when when they don't know who to trust who who they can trust to be able to bring them into community first and then into the larger community can be really important
2: i think that i think that's so wise i think there's so much wisdom and i think that wisdom Bernice, also comes from experienced pain, not only maybe that you've experienced, but you've seen others experience as well. And so I I think that along with that, if I can provide another idea, just piggybacking and and taking your idea even further, um, it, it doesn't even have to be an organized small group. Number one, if you're a listener, you should be the one to step into their lives and to start providing that community. Or if you work at let's say you work at some organization or some place and you have a lunch break. And let's say there are two or three of you who are Christians who get together for lunch and invite them with you. You know, you can kind of have unofficial, you know, Christian community right there. Um, There are all different kinds of, of ways to do that. Even inviting somebody over to your house to have dinner with your family or lunch with your family or whatever, or inviting them to brunch or, or something like that. I'm, it, but I think that's in the same spirit of what you're talking about there, Bernice, because I, I do agree. I, I think what you said, it has so much wisdom. I think it's so wise.
0: Mm. That's awesome. Bernice, do you have one or two final questions? And then we'll we'll ask the last question here.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll have no shortage of questions for you, Caleb. (laughs) Particularly in your context, Caleb, as a pastor of a large church, um, when you're looking into the future of your congregation, into the future of your organization, how do you see your church moving forward into the 21st century in the way that like the political climate is not going to get any less charged? Um, How do you see your church navigating the next five to 10 years in, in your context? Yeah.
2: Um, that's a great question. I, I I would revert back to a few different answers. I revert back number one to saying we got to be all about Jesus. Um, number two, um, we need to be involved in our local community. Our church is in um, Los Angeles. I think it's one of the larger churches in Los Angeles County. We run about on a weekend service, even anywhere between 12 to 15,000 people. And so um, I think in our church has been very, very involved in in the community um, as far as uh, very, very involved in trying to help those who are homeless and on the streets who have set up tent cities in uh, the LA area. Um, You know, our our church for a while was an immunization center. I know there are probably a lot of different views on vaccinations. and and I'm not trying to make a statement one way or another about vaccinations. I'm just saying that our church tried to serve as an outlet for people, you know, to to come and you know to get help for that. Um, whenever there's a wildfire, which seems like every fall there's a wildfire where we live, just every fall in the San Fernando Valley area, um, you know, we just open our auditorium. People can just come and sleep, and we have volunteers there all night watching over people. Um, and so I th- I think that it's, it's as much as we're involved in community, um, I think that the future is going to require churches to be even more involved in their local community. I've heard so many pastor friends say, well, you know, now that, you know, people during the pandemic, they can listen to anybody else they want to listen to. They can listen to Beth Moore. They can listen to Priscilla Schreier. They can listen to uh, Tony Evans. They can listen to... uh, I mean, you, you name the, the Christian leader. They can listen to them. Why are they going to come back to my church? I'm like, well, I mean, number one, I hate to break it to you, but they were listening to those people before. So just <laughs> to let you know, you know, it's not like we're hiding it, okay? Um, number two, uh, when it comes down to it, people I think in the future are really going to look for churches based on two things, the authenticity of the community and the involvement in the local community. Um, and I think that the future church has to move into those into that realm. Now, there are people who have said, well, you know, the mega church is going away. Those people have no idea what they're talking about. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, that is as crazy as somebody saying that Nickelback is a good band. Um, both are insane comments, okay?
0: Well- we're interviewing um, next week uh, the, the authors of the church called Tove, uh, where they talk a little bit about the ma- the mega church experience. I haven't read the entire book yet, yeah. Bernice. You have, but they kind of touch on that, don't they? A little bit. Do you want to give Caleb a little bit of a synopsis?
2: <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about Nickelback there for a second. No. like I insulted your band or whatever. No, but I
0: do know that there's a criticism <laughs> towards the mega church. You're you're on the, the pulse there because. Um, they both come out of Willow Creek Church in Chicago and talked about the abuse of power that's more, um, I don't know if it's more prevalent, but it's definitely more uh, of a temptation perhaps. So what do you say to something like that? Because I know we're going to discuss that here shortly. I,
2: I would argue, and I don't know their full experience, so I want to be careful about, I'm not criticizing their experience, but people say, well, megachurch pastors have are able to abuse their power more than others. Really, in small church pastors aren't. Hmm. I mean, I know a lot of small church pastors that look at that as their own kingdom. Like, it, it, it's, it's not about the size of a church. It's about the systems in place. Yeah. It's about the accountability that is there. Um, so pe- there are people who say the megachurch is going away. Again, those people are insane. Um, it's not going away. Um, mega churches have been around for a long time, you know, uh, especially in the West, as you all well know, people love gathering, big gatherings. Mm-hmm. People look, people go back to the first century. Look at, I mean, go back to gladiator games, go back to the Coliseum, you know, a couple hundred years after that, you go back and you look at, at that people have always valued larger gatherings. And so, if, if anything, here's what I think with mega churches. I don't think mega churches will cease to be big. I think that as some expand in locations, um, they're probably people are going to want probably smaller auditoriums with um, more options to attend, where they can attend a service and they can be missed if they're not there. Now, obviously, hopefully, they would be in a small group and they would, they would find some of that community there, but still. Um, But yeah, I I can't, I can't imagine what they did experience going out of um, coming out of Willow Creek. My buddy, Dave Dummett who's a good friend of mine just became the senior pastor of Willow Creek Mm. and what he's had to endure is just awful. And I think anybody that went and sat in that seat afterwards would. And I think that I don't know everything behind it, but I think some of the criticism that he has received has been unfair. But I think it's due to the fact that he's in that seat. Hmm. Um, and so I do think that there are mega churches that are abusive, just like, you know, churches that are small and churches that are mid-sized and so on and so forth. And I'm talking too much about
0: No, that. no, I was just going to say, just because, again, going back to, we're all <laughs> human prone to a lot of sin, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Caleb, I... I really appreciate you being here. We always ask one final question. I'm going to send it over to Bernice right now. Um, and Bernice, if you have any final thoughts before you ask this question, you can go ahead and share them now. But I, I just really thank you for your ministry. I'm thankful for uh, you finding Jesus instead of just a bunch of you know, Christians yeah. <laughs> holding signs and being unloving. And, man, there's so many questions I could ask you about your ministry. I, I saw that you travel all over the United States, Um, and you're obviously in demand. You've got a wonderful book coming out. If people want to find out more about you after listening to this, where can they find you?
2: Uh, they can find me at, uh, or, uh, messygracegroup.org. Uh, my social media account is Caleb Wilds, C-A-L-E-B-W-I-L-D-S, because that is my middle name. A lot of people are like, why does it say Wilds? It's like, well, that's my middle name. There are too
0: many other Caleb Wilds out there, so that's really cool. Well, and I'm prone to like love the name Caleb because my oldest son, his name's Caleb. So there you go, (laughs) yeah, there you go. Go find Caleb Wilds. All right, Bernice, you've got it. All right,
1: the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those four gifts that we can find in Jesus Christ, which of those stand out to you the most in your life right now and why?
2: I think love right now, uh, because my, this has nothing to do with anything that we've been talking about, but my wife's dad died unexpectedly during surgery at the end of April. Mm -hmm. He was in his early 60s. And Um, The surgeons weren't expecting it. My mother-in-law wasn't. My wife and her sister wasn't. Um, I had to go tell my 12-year-old daughter and 14-year-old son that their grandpa died. And my son, who's 14, and Larry, my wife's dad, were were just so um, incredibly close. I've never heard my son cry like that before. And I hope I never... I hope I never do again, um, but I'm just very, very thankful because the night before he died during the surgery, um, he was already in the hospital, they were prepping him who's gonna spend the night. We had my wife and daughter and son and I had him on speakerphone, we were praying for him. And then my son asked a question. Um, he said, Papa, what happens if you don't make it tomorrow? Part of me just wanted to hit him in the head say, what are you talking about? <laughs> don't ask that, whatever. And I'm glad that he did, You know, looking back. And I think it was the Holy Spirit moving him because he said, um, my father-in-law, Larry, said, well, Joel, I don't think that's going to happen. But if it does, I want you to know where I'm going and I want you to know that I know who I'll be with. And if it does happen, I want you and your sister to stay as close to Jesus as you possibly can for the rest of your life. And that night when I told them you got to stay close to Jesus or that night when I told them about Larry passing, both Joel and Rachel both said that is what Papa said. They remembered that. And, um, it's, it's been a, a very brutal loss, but at the same time, I think it's really emphasized the love that not only we find in other Christians, not only the love that we find in in Christ, but also the love that we have for each other as a family. So that's why I say love would probably be the one that is highlighted the most for me right now.
0: Wow, well, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, as a mom to a 12 year old who's really close to his grandfather, uh, I can't imagine. But thank you. Uh, I'm. Thankful for the love and the hope that we have in Jesus. And Caleb and Bernice, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on here and sharing with us. And and Bernice, I've loved listening to your insights. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him. Until next time.